Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today I have a very interesting story for you all. And thank you to everyone who passed this story along to me. I've got way too many people to hat tip and DMs to account for. So just accept my thanks to everyone who flagged this for me as somebody that is very interested in mergers, acquisitions, Disney, Star Wars, authorship, and copyright. And this story is about an author that I remember reading when I was much, much younger by the name of Alan Dean Foster, who, through the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, has issued a complaint against Disney, now one of the biggest multimedia corporations in the world. And this is how it went. Here is a message from the SFWA's president, Mary Robinette Kowal. Last year, a member came to SFWA's grievance committee with a problem which on the surface sounds simple and resolvable. He had written novels and was not being paid the royalties that were specified in his contract. The Grievance Committee is designed to resolve contract disputes like this. As part of our negotiating toolbox, we guarantee anonymity for both the writer and the publisher if the grievance is resolved. When talks break down, the president is asked to step in. We do this for any member. In this case, the member is Alan Dean Foster and the publisher is Disney. So this is a very high-level grievance between a very famous author and obviously a very famous company. Now, before we get into the weeds here, we are definitely going to take a look at Mr. Foster's commentary. I do want to give a disclaimer. I am not regularly in the business of negotiating publishing contracts for authors or otherwise working in the written world. I am primarily a corporate attorney that works in software and technology, and you will usually see those topics covered more robustly in virtual legality. But the basics of contracts are the same across all industries. And the highlighted yellow phrase that you see on your screen right now, he had written novels and was not being paid the royalties that were specified in his contract. If true, is black letter law. It is clear, it is crystal clear that if he is being owed money for work that he did for somebody, and there is a contract he can point to that says somebody owes him money, then he is in fact owed that money. Where I tend to get a little bit more confused on this subject and this particular grievance is who it is aimed at. So one of the things you know, if you go and you look at any kind of contracts, if you look at royalties like we did with respect to YouTube earlier this week, is that somebody is owed money by someone for something, but it's not always everybody in the chain of intellectual property ownership. So I pulled up a uh, blog post from a website called the Society of Authors, which I believe is a European Union company, but we're going to try to use this as our baseline. And this is what I would anticipate when we're talking about contracts of this type in general. It says, how do authors get paid? What an author is paid per sale is dictated by the contract they have with their publisher. The publisher takes on the role of publishing the book, of making sure it gets printed and out to retailers and doing the marketing behind the scenes, arranging for travel and signings and whatever else it might be. The author writes the book, the publisher gets a certain cut, the author gets a certain cut, and we move on with our lives. As this blog post says, the author is entitled to royalties from sales of their work, which are first used to pay off any advance that was given. Traditionally, the royalty is a percentage of the recommended retail price. A typical royalty is 10% of that price and 7.5% on paperbacks, which isn't always the case, as they go on to say. More often than not, it's net receipts now, which accounts for the discounts that you might give to Amazon or another retailer. But suffice it to say, the money comes in from the sales of the book to the publisher. The publisher looks at what money it got, looks what the contractual obligation is to the author, and pays out the appropriate portion of that amount to the author. So the question becomes, 
this particular grievance is is labeled as one against Disney, and is that applicable? Before we dive into that question, let's take a look at the actual commentary from Mr. Foster. Dear Mickey, we have a lot in common, you and I. We share a birthday, November 18th. My dad's nickname was Mickey. There's more. When you purchased Lucasfilm, you acquired the rights to some books I wrote. Star Wars, the novelization of the very first film, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the first sequel novel. You owe me royalties on these books. You stopped paying them. Pay attention to that language. When you purchased 20th Century Fox, you eventually acquired the rights to other books I had written. The novelizations of Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3. You never paid royalties on any of these or even issued royalty statements for them. Note the different language here. And it's one that we have to ask the question of. Not only do I have to disclose that I'm not regularly in the business of negotiating publishing contracts for authors, but also that from here, from virtual legality at the kind of 30,000 foot view, based only on what we can find online and through other research materials, we have to assume certain things. So the language differences are important. We look at this last sentence from the second paragraph of this comment, and it suggests that Disney was at one point paying him royalties which would also suggest that Disney had the obligation to pay him royalties, which is an interesting question because that is one of the things that we want to ask about publishers and Disney and Disney's relationship to those publishers. You owe me and you stopped paying them. Not that you never paid them. And that would be something if Mr. Foster was on this very podcast, I would ask him, did they pay for a while and stop? That is part of the inquiry. Versus what you see with respect to Fox, you never paid royalties on any of these or even issued royalty statements for them. Now, ordinarily, outside of a legal context, outside of a corporate public relations statement, I wouldn't necessarily be parsing it this closely, but this is an author. This is someone that knows how to use words. And this does suggest to me a difference in how these two items were approached. And it does suggest that maybe Disney thought at one point, at least in the recent past, that it had an obligation to pay these royalties and now doesn't. All these books are still very much in print. They still earn money for you. When one company buys another, they acquire its liabilities as well as its assets, which is an incomplete thought, but we will get to that. You are certainly reaping the benefits of the assets, and I'd very much like my minuscule, though it's not small to me, share. You want me to sign an NDA before even talking. I've signed a lot of NDAs in my 50-year career. Never once did anyone ever ask me to sign one prior to negotiations for the obvious reason that once you sign, you can no longer talk about the matter at hand. Every one of my representatives in this matter, with many, many decades of experience in such business, echo my bewilderment. Now, if we could take a pause right there, I will issue my two cents on this. I have very often issued and responded to NDA requests in the nature of, we are thinking of two businesses that are gonna work together. We wanna evaluate whether or not we would have synergies, whether we'd be a good fit, whether we might wanna acquire you, and there will be NDAs before any negotiations take place. Now, Disney is a large, multinational, multi-conglomerate entity with many, many moving parts. And so it wouldn't surprise me if Disney Legal in general versus their publishing arm or their publishing arms legal department just has as a baseline rule, if we are going to discuss negotiations, particularly in the shadow of litigation, we are going to have an NDA cover those discussions. And if you don't want to sign one, we are not going to have the conversation with you. So when he says, my representatives have are bewildered about all of this, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt that it is unusual and an unusual circumstance for an author and a publisher talking about these things. But I also don't doubt that it is Disney's standard operating procedure because in many, many businesses, in many industries, many of which are in my book of business and are my clients, 
you absolutely have an NDA that we would basically frame as we are going to talk to each other. We're going to say things about each other and about our own company that we don't want getting out there to the public. And we're not going to know whether we've got a meeting of the minds or otherwise an accord until we have that conversation. So we're going to sign a very light NDA at the front end. That's not unusual. So that's my two cents on that. But it wouldn't surprise me if that's not, in fact, the ordinary course of dealing with respect to authorship and publishing. You continue to ignore requests from my agents. You continue to ignore queries from FWA, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. You continue to ignore my legal representatives. I know this is what gargantuan corporations often do. Ignore requests and inquiries, hoping the petitioner will simply go away or possibly die. But I'm still here and I am still entitled to what you owe me, including not to be ignored just because I am one lone writer. How many other writers and artists out there are you similarly ignoring? My wife has serious medical issues, and in 2016, I was diagnosed with an advanced form of cancer. We could use the money, not charity, just what I'm owed. I've always loved Disney, the films, the parks, growing up with the Disneyland TV show. I don't think Uncle Walt would approve of how you are currently treating me. Maybe someone in the right position just hasn't received the word, though. After all these months of ignored requests and queries, that's hard to countenance. Or as a guy named Bob Iger said, the way you do anything is the way you do everything, and I'm not feeling it. Now, look, again, corporate lawyer here. We've got a lot of appeals to emotion at the end. I don't doubt any of it or the veracity of it. It doesn't necessarily matter with respect to contract rights. But of course, if you're Disney, you don't want this public relations nightmare out there. And we'll be talking about that as part of this video as well. As Ms. Kowal says as part of the uh, union here, in my decade with the organization, the fact that we are forced to present this publicly is unprecedented. So too are the problems. The simple problem is that we have a writer who is not being paid. I 100% agree. If he's got a contract and he's got a right, someone owes him money if his books are being sold. The larger problem has the potential to affect every writer. Disney's argument is that they have purchased the rights but not the obligations of the contract. Now, that's an important argument and it is a significant claim. The main question I have when I look at the entirety of this article is that The main complaint appears to be that they have been ignoring him, that they haven't been party to these conversations. So I do wonder what the origin of this statement about what Disney's argument is. We don't have a statement from Disney, to the best of my knowledge. We don't know what Disney has said about this behind closed doors. If they have made this claim, very likely they are wrong from a legal perspective, as we will look at from the whole context of this video. But it would surprise me even if Disney was going out with such a bold claim with respect to American contract law. This blog post continues. In other words, they believe they have the right to publish work, but are not obligated to pay the writer no matter what the contract says. If we let this stand, it could set precedent to fundamentally alter the way copyright and contracts operate in the United States. All a publisher would have to do to break a contract would be to sell it to a sibling company. And in fact, a sibling company that wouldn't even have to be operational. If you could say, hey, I've got a contractual obligation at my company, and then I'm going to drop down a new company that's going to have maybe the identical ownership of this company, and we're just going to transfer it over and say, hey, this new company bought the rights to publish the book, but not the obligations to pay the royalties. Well, then we're safe and in the clear. Now, that isn't as clean when you've got two existing operational entities and not one that is kind of defunct in Lucasfilm after it has been bought by Disney. But... The fact remains that if, in fact, Disney's argument is, as they say in this statement, 
then the complaint put forth in this blog post is correct. You can't just cleanse obligations from a contract by moving it between entities. Contracts are whole things that move both rights and obligations across the line, whether in the form of a merger, an equity sale, or an asset sale. Now, asset sales are something that we're going to have to talk about because that might be what Disney thinks it did. It's very difficult to say. Finally, we get to the end of this post and they say you have three choices. You can pay him under his current contract and in the future for whatever you owe him. You can cease publication until this new contract is signed, or you can just cease it completely, pay him his back royalties, and we walk away and you don't have the right to publish Splinter of the Mind's Eye or anything else that Alan Dean Foster wrote for quote unquote you in the future. This blog post finishes by saying, if you're a fan or believe that a writer's work has value, please let Disney know. That's a bit of a straw man. Of course, I believe a writer's work has value. It doesn't necessarily mean that Disney is the one that should be on the hook for it. Now, why do I keep saying that, right? I agree entirely with the yellow statement here that he had written novels and was not being paid the royalties that were specified in his contract. If that is in fact the case, somebody owes him money. But is it Disney? Right? We go and we look at the history of this on Wikipedia. We see Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which I'm just going to use as the exemplar. He m mentioned a number of books there, some of which are under different publishers than this, none of which are under Disney publishing, as I understand it right now. Originally published in 1978 by Del Rey, a division of Ballantine Books. And if you go and you look at Del Rey, you see that Del Rey is actually a part of the Random House portfolio, which itself is part of a company called Penguin Random House. So it's three levels deep. And then another level in what they call an imprint, right? That Lucas books or whatever you want to frame it as from Lucas and whatever Disney is calling their Star Wars books line at this point is an imprint. It's another name that they give to identify that these Del Rey books are about Star Wars or about Lucas properties rather than something else. But you do see that Splitter in the Mind's Eye, which they label here as published in March 1986, is in fact still available on Amazon. You'd have to pay $8 for it but that it's published by Del Rey. So it doesn't appear to be published by Disney and it wouldn't have appeared to have been published by Lucasfilm in the first instance. So what's happening here? Well, I found an article from a website called TG Daily that was put out when the acquisition happened between Disney and Lucasfilm that was talking about what's the future of comics. And they had this to say, some decisions seem pretty easy. Lucas books, for example, will likely stay intact as is. The Lucas books imprint which publishes all the Star Wars novels, is not owned by Lucasfilm and thus did not go over to Disney with the acquisition. Disney will likely leave this arrangement alone because it does not usually print novels in-house, though they do have a division for printing small children's books. Random House currently prints almost all novels associated with Disney properties, and on the surface, there doesn't seem to be any good reason to move Star Wars and Indiana Jones books over from Del Rey to Random House, especially since it's all one big group of companies, right? So what we are looking at, let's just say before the acquisition that Disney had to purchase Lucasfilm, is that Lucasfilm didn't publish these books, that the publisher of the books was a company called Del Rey, itself a subsidiary of a subsidiary of other publishing companies. And in all likelihood, the primary contract as between Alan Dean Foster and the company that owes him money is between him and Del Rey, or maybe Ballantine. Now, there would have been an arrangement between Del Rey or Ballantine or whomever, and maybe even Alan Dean Foster himself, and Disney, right? We understand that. I pulled up an interview from the StarWars.com page that talks about how Disney has been operating these quote-unquote collaborations. And the question given is, 
even when you go into other genres, I imagine you have to keep tone in mind. How do you work with the licensees to stay on track? And the answer given is it's an extremely collaborative process. The editorial team here at Lucasfilm works very, very closely with everyone within Lucasfilm, certainly with Story Group, but also with the games division, with the everyone from the asset team, everyone on the online side, and at the same time, we work very closely with our licensees. We are partners in crime with everyone at Delray, Marvel, IDW, and DK, just to name a few, and honestly, we wouldn't want it any other way. The most enjoyable part of the job is that collaboration. So what Lucasfilm does, appears to have done before the acquisition by Disney, and appears to have continued to do in at least some part, is they say, hey, we don't publish ourselves. We are going to get specialists in making comic books at IDW and at Marvel and in making novels at Del Rey. And we are going to license out the rights to the copyrighted material that we own in Star Wars and Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and Rey and Kylo or whomever you might like from the sequel trilogy. And we're going to send those out. We're going to give permission for authors to write about them. And then as part of that permission, we are going to guide the process of what the overall narrative arc is and hopefully... As you'll see in this interview, if you look at the link in the description to this video, make a unified universe. Now, this was years ago, and you can decide for yourself whether they have succeeded as of 2020. I suspect a lot of you in virtual legality know where I stand on this. However, even though I don't have a lot of a track record in book publishing, I can tell you that this concept matches what we know about software and video games and intellectual property coverage, right? It even matches what Disney does with it. I've pulled up the Marvel Spider-Man Miles Morales title card because it just came out last week. But you know that Sony doesn't own Spider-Man. Sony licenses Spider-Man. And that Spider-Man is owned by Marvel, a subsidiary of Disney. And that Disney and Marvel have their hands in making sure that they are happy with whatever it is that Sony and through Sony's subsidiary Insomniac, they are creating. And then when Sony sells a copy of Spider-Man Miles Morales, they make some money for making the game, and then they kick back money over to the licensor, the people that made Spider-Man and Miles Morales and everything else, and that's how that contract chain works. So even in video games, we see that a licensee and a licensor and a publisher aren't the same, right? It would be like, let's say that the voice actor for Miles Morales were owed royalties on his performance. I don't think that is necessarily the case, but let's pretend that it is. He world royalties on his performance, and then when he didn't get them, he didn't argue about it to Insomniac or to Sony. He went straight to Marvel and said, Marvel owes me that money. Now, why does that happen? That happens because Disney is big and large, right? And I don't mean to say that Alan Dean Foster doesn't have a contract with Disney. I don't know that. And if Alan Dean Foster wants to clear this up, more power to him. I will be following this story 100%. But what I can tell you is I don't see from the outside a contractual relationship with Disney directly. What I see is a giant corporation with deep pockets that has a relationship with a publisher that maybe somebody doesn't want to offend. And now they go after Disney because Disney is going to be susceptible to bad public relations on this stuff. And they think that they could potentially go and bare minimum get Disney to go tell Del Rey to put forth the royalties or to go tell Titan or whomever else has the publishing rights to these other books that Mr. Foster mentions in respect of Alien and Aliens 3 to get him his money. And very correctly, if he has these contract rights and the books are being sold on Amazon, he is owed something by somebody. I do not mean to disparage or discount that. That is 100% correct. If he isn't getting paid, he needs to argue about it to someone. And yeah, Disney is a nice target to go and argue about it too.
Now, we also have to talk about the acquisition of Lucasfilm by Disney. This is a very tricky thing to actually go and find. I wound up looking at this for some time to try to figure out what happened here. And in all honesty, I don't have a great feel for what they did here except for the word merger. So in October of 2012, this was the announcement from the Walt Disney Company. The Walt Disney Company has agreed to acquire Lucasfilm Limited. That's a slightly different name than what we will see in the next announcement. That's a corporation in California. In a stock and cash transaction, Lucasfilm is 100% owned by George Lucas. More power to him, right? The transaction value is $4.05 billion, with Disney paying approximately half of the consideration in cash and issuing approximately 40 million shares at closing. Then, lo and behold, around December 2012, a couple months later, they say today Disney has completed its acquisition and under the terms of a merger agreement, the transaction has a total value of approximately $4.06 billion. Lucasfilm's assets include its massively popular Star Wars franchise, operating businesses in live-action film production, consumer products, animation, visual effects, and audio post-production, as well as a substantial portfolio of cutting-edge entertainment technologies. It operates under the names Lucasfilm Limited LLC, LucasArts, Industrial Light and & Magic, and Skywalker Sound, right? Paying attention to the names? It's no longer Lucasfilm Limited, it's Lucasfilm Limited LLC by the time they purchase it. Why did that happen that way? Almost certainly for tax reasons and for financial driving reasons, but not ones that we can necessarily see from the 30,000 foot view that we have. You also see it referenced in their actual formal SEC file documents under the terms of a merger agreement. And then if you go into the California business entity documents, you can start to see everything that went into this. As of December of 2012, December 17th to be precise, there's Lucasfilm, there's GDEE as a new company, a California corporation that's a direct subsidiary of Lucasfilm, and then there's GDEE Merger Sub, which is a direct subsidiary of GDEE, and we can go and we can do this forever. But I don't want to bore you to tears with these documents. I will link these to the extent that they are interesting to you. But you see Lucasfilm Limited converts into an LLC on the 18th, the day after this all happens. And there's some mergers with this family of entities. And then you see Valor, Valor Acquisition Sub, and Valor, I believe it's Merger Sub, come into play where Walt Disney Company has those two subsidiaries. They merge around the family of the Lucas entities and ultimately wind up describing the merger as parent will acquire the company. Walt Disney will acquire the company through a merger of merger sub with and into Nuco, with Nuco, this entity, GDEE Inc, surviving. And look, this is all very interesting. This has all the formulations of both the reverse and forward triangular merger, which are fancy legal terms to say that subsidiaries were used on both the acquiring party's behalf and the selling party's behalf to try to isolate liabilities so that you still have a subsidiary relationship and it's not all just taken in to your entity because you don't just want all the liabilities associated with your entity. You want to keep them in different buckets because if Lucasfilm did something and somebody sues, you want to be able to at least isolate those assets to what they did in that lawsuit and not have it attached to you know, the Polynesian Resort in Florida. So it always makes sense to make sure that when you're acquiring, you keep things a little separate or at bare minimum, you itemize everything that you are purchasing. But in a merger, you basically take everything, right? And I've just pulled up the California Corporations Code so that we can take a look at it so that you can see it. There's a lot of entities flying around and we can't be sure exactly what was moving around between those entities. But what we can be sure of is what the baseline rule for a merger is. In California, upon merger pursuant to this chapter, the separate existence of the disappearing corporation ceases and the surviving corporation shall succeed without, without other transfer to all the rights and property of each of the disappearing corporations 
and shall be subject to all the debts and liabilities of each in the same manner as if the surviving corporation had itself incurred them. And there's similar language with respect to limited liability companies in case you think that makes a difference. It doesn't for this purpose. When you merge entities, the surviving entity takes on all the aspects, assets and liabilities of the non-surviving entities as if it had incurred them itself. And there's different language for this in California and Delaware and all these good things. But the point is when there is a merger, you take on all those aspects of the two merged entities. But you've got all these family of entities. And yes, you're probably moving things around for tax purposes, but because you don't need to file the movement of the assets, the actual transfer of things around these family of entities, those aren't things that need to be filed in California or Delaware or anywhere else. We can't 100% see what was being done here. So it is possible that back in 2012, Disney thought it was playing tricks and was trying to get out of certain contractual obligations and keep other ones and only now is facing the wrath of a science fiction author because it hasn't paid royalties on what came out of this entire transaction. I don't know that for sure, but it's a possibility. It's probably a bad possibility because it's not the usual course of business, right? I pulled up a CoolieGo uh, website, CoolieGo being somebody that helps entrepreneurs and startups and has a lot of good assets there that entrepreneurs can check out before they hire Hogue Law to help them do their mergers or their other formation. And they qualify the various ways in which you can purchase assets or purchase companies more specifically, right? And, and that's what we have to talk about because we have to understand what Disney is even trying to get at here. So in the normal course of business, as we just saw, a merger consolidates two companies that are distinct legal entities into a single legal entity that holds the combined assets and liabilities of the original companies. And if you don't want those liabilities, there are ways to get around it. There's also stock sale in which the buyer doesn't merge entities. It just goes to George Lucas and says, hey, you own 100% of the stock of Lucasfilm, sell us 100% of the stock. And then Lucasfilm just becomes owned by Walt Disney which doesn't have the same effect as a merger, doesn't potentially have the same tax benefits, and obviously is not the direction that they wanted to go. There is, however, also the asset sale. So if you think of a company as a legal fiction and that George Lucas owns 100% of the equity, this ephemeral kind of concept of what ownership of the company is, yes, he can sell that stock, but he can also order the company to sell all the desk chairs and the computers and the emails and the intellectual property and everything else, the assets of the entity instead of the stock. Whereupon after the company sells all those assets and it has $4 billion, it would distribute it up to George and Lucasfilm would essentially be a shell entity, would probably have also sold its name to Disney as part of that. Now there is no reason to believe that that is what happened here. Every indication is that this was a merger arrangement that Walt Disney Company dropped down a subsidiary, they merged with and into the Lucasfilm entity, they took over Lucasfilm, and that is what the result was, and they took on all the liabilities of the entity. But if they hadn't, just for purposes of the argument, an asset sale allows you to separate out the liabilities. The buyer may assume none, some, or all of the liabilities of your company. Now, even if that were the case, Disney's apparent argument here, when we get to the end of this blog post and they say, they have purchased the rights, but not the obligations of the contract, still doesn't work. I've pulled up now one of my favorite asset purchase agreement samples. You can find this on Edgar. We will, of course, link it in the description to this video, but it itemizes how an asset purchase usually looks. It says, seller shall sell to buyer and buyer shall purchase from seller all assets free and clear of encumbrances, including this list of stuff. 
And it's all contracts set forth on the disclosure schedules. This is essentially extra pages that actually go forth and itemize the assets. So if you imagine this is not contracts, but actually hard assets, I often find that that's more easy for people to grapple with. And you just say, hey, you have to list all the desks you have on floor 34. And we have to know that that's what we are buying. It's the same with contracts. You have to name all the contracts we are buying. And then we don't want to buy your waste management contract. We don't really want to buy your uh, music contract for your lobby. We don't need those. We already have vendors that cover these things. So you get to keep those. You have to discharge them. And we are only going to buy what are the quote unquote assigned contracts as well as the intellectual property of the company. And we are more specifically not going to buy certain things, the excluded assets, including all contracts that didn't make it onto that list. We aren't going to write down that waste management com uh, contract. We aren't going to write down that music contract. And more specifically, we are only going to assume the liabilities under the assigned contracts arising after the closing. And this is the normal way of writing this. This is frankly the only way I've ever seen this written in an asset purchase agreement is yes, you don't have to take on the liabilities of a contract that existed before you bought the thing. Nobody is suggesting that Disney or Del Rey or anyone else owes Alan Dean Foster for the royalties that would have accrued to his benefit before December of 2012, right? If Alan Dean Foster didn't get paid that money for sales that happened before then, he is owed it from somebody else. And he knows that. But when Disney would purchase the contracts under the assets, the right to publish the document, the book, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, then they take on the obligations after the closing. You can't separate out the contract as Disney appears to be claiming that they want to do, at least as described in the statement on the blog post. And you see that here. Excluded liabilities are any liability commitment arising out of the contract that is not an assigned contract. And we, we will see later on anything that is happening prior to the closing date, right? Any liability of seller prior to or on the closing date, provision of services prior to or on the closing date. We don't owe things on the contracts that accrued before we bought them. And that's perfectly normal in an asset purchase context, which means at the end of the day, even though we've had a nice little discussion about mergers, reverse mergers, forward triangular mergers, who's a publisher, who's not a publisher, whether or not Disney owes this money, somebody does. And if Disney purchased a contract and that contract said, we owe money to Alan Dean Foster, we at Lucasfilm owe money to Alan Dean Foster, when they merged with Lucasfilm, they undoubtedly retained the obligation to pay that money, especially if they are otherwise getting the money from the sales on Amazon of Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Now, if they aren't, if it's in fact Del Rey, then it's still probably useful if you're Alan Dean Foster to bring this complaint to Disney because Disney has the power, is the 300-pound gorilla in the room that can go and fight against the Del Rey's of the world and say, hey, look, you're our licensed partner. Make sure this guy gets paid. This looks bad for us and proceed from there. So I don't necessarily think this is an argument made in bad faith. It's difficult for me to see exactly what kind of contract he would have had directly with Lucasfilm publisher being Disney after the purchase, but a contract directly with Lucasfilm rather than with Del Rey. But if he did, then Disney is the party to that contract and Disney owes him money. Either way, when you get to the end of this whole conversation, somebody owes him money. It might be Disney. It might be Del Rey. It might be somebody else. But this grievance, at least from what we can tell from afar, seems to be entirely legitimate, even if I'm not entirely sure that Disney is the right party to make these payments. Thank you again to everybody who flagged this 
issue for me to talk about. I love talking about these things. And Alan Dean Foster really is an author that I read extensively in my youth. So I'm very sorry to see all of the stuff in that blog post about his cancer and his medical treatments and not getting paid for the work that he has done. So I hope he does, in fact, get paid under whatever contract rights that he has. If you liked hearing about this, if you liked this talk about business and law and pop culture and now books and music and movies and video games and television, please like, subscribe, ring bells, share it with everybody you think might be interested in it. Thank you so much for following it on YouTube or for listening to it if you listen to it as a podcast. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.